You're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. This week we're speaking to the amazing addiction specialist Gabor Mate. It's one of the best podcasts I've ever been involved with. You're going to love it. If you want to see me live, you can in Bristol at the end of this month, November. I think it's the 26th of November. Do look at russellbrand.com for details, a show of Shakespeare monologues. And then the following week, first week of December, I'm in Northampton. Check it out. It's a really good show. Small theatres, intimate experience. You'll love it. Today's Under the Skin has the amazing Gabor Mate as guest. I've just uh, finished interviewing him. I'm, I'm spun out because the episode is so brilliant. It sort of goes all over the show he ends up at one point diagnosing politicians not in a kind of well this happened that well he does actually he talks about how their childhood trauma has likely made them highly traumatized damaged individuals that certainly shouldn't be running societies and he go he does name names it's one of the most revered thinkers on the psychology of addiction this is off the back of his book i'm reading this his radical findings are reframing how we all view human development it is actually a matter of fact as a matter of fact because he was able to apply the, what I want to say, the framing of addiction to all kinds of social models. It was a bit like sort of how Jordan Peterson uses uh, psychiatry, psychology, and his understanding of psychological research to frame social and political interviews. Although I would say that Gabor Mate's worldview is much more hmm, optimistic, benevolent, loving, perhaps, uh, and you know that Jordan Peterson is a person that's been on this podcast and who who I enormously enjoy on a personal level. So this, I think, is an interesting, informative, exciting, dense, intense uh, podcast on the subject of addiction and on the subject of how we can cope as damaged people in the world. And we're all damaged people and we're all in the world. So there is something for everyone. Also, psychoanalysis of Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Thatcher. I mean... What do you want for literally free of charge? Jam on it. Would you like it that we put jam on the vibrational frequencies that you'll... No, you wouldn't, would you? Because it would get stuck in your ear canal. So under the skin with Russell Brand and Gabon Mate. Thank you. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that's, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Gabble Matty, thanks very much for coming on Under the Skin. You're the uh, author, I'm, I'm telling the audience this, you know what books you've written, author of uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which in itself is a, a sort of a Buddhist Yes. metaphor uh, but of course um, the reason I'm so excited to talk to you the reason that I believe you're having such an important cultural impact is because of your uh, rare compassion and insight into the world of addiction whilst yourself you've never had a substance dependency issue you are happy to identify as an addict uh, of purchasing CDs compulsive spending tell me how do you define addiction so addiction, it's a complex process, but it's manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in and therefore craves, but suffers negative consequences as a result of and cannot give up despite negative consequences. So the distinguishing features are craving, relief, pleasure in the short term, negative impact in the long term, 
inability or unwillingness to give it up. You know, those are addictions. And you notice that my addictions is nothing about drugs. So mm. it, could, it could be drugs. It could be obviously cocaine, crystal meth, fentanyl, opioids, uh, um, stimulants of any kind, alcohol, nicotine. It could also be shopping, sex. You've talked about pornography, um, eating, work, political power, exercise, uh, internet gaming, cell phoning, any activities. So the issue is not what you're doing, it's your internal relationship to it. Is there craving? Is there uh, pleasure? Is there negative consequence? Yes. That, that's what defines the addiction. It ain't what you do, it's the why that you do it. Yeah. Um, that's really, uh, for me, I often find in these conversations that I am coming from a speculative position. I'm talking to often academics or highly experienced people about subjects about which I know nothing. When, and, and to a degree, the same is true in this instance, except for empirically, I understand addiction as an addict. And when you talk through that process, I mentally find myself at each of those stations on the cross of, oh yeah, craving, I recognize craving. Um, one of the things that interests me about addicts and addiction is as a 12-step abstinence person, I am interested in your belief in the efficacy of 12-step programs and its breadth in particular, two areas that I'd like your insight into are extreme substance misusers, as in street homeless users of substances, and uh, anorexia and eating disorders. Two areas where personally I've noticed the 12 steps possibly falter. Well, so it's interesting because when you talk about, in your book, you talk about the, the, the five steps or not the five steps of addiction but the five aspects of addiction the first one you mentioned is pain yes strangely enough the 12-step programs never mention pain they don't talk about trauma as such uh, even though Bill W the man who founded uh, AA was an abandoned highly traumatized child they just don't deal with the trauma and you and I, in our respective books, both quote Eckhart Tolle, who says that addictions begin in pain and end in pain. Now, the 12 steps seem to recognize the pain that addiction ends in, but they don't have a lot to say about the trauma that addiction starts with. So th that's really my, my, my basic um, cavil about the 12 steps. I find the 12 steps wonderful. I think as you make the point somewhere in the book, often I've, I've made the same point that sometimes I wish I had been a raging alcoholic because then I could have done the 12 steps in a real way and transformed myself in positive ways that I've seen a lot of 12 steppers do. So those 12 steps are, are not about addiction, they're actually about life. They're actually about living an integrated, um, complete life is what they're about, a spiritually informed, authentic life. So naturally they would work, naturally they would work for addictions. But I find their um, their rigidity or their failure to incorporate trauma work, uh, uh, I think, leaves them short of what of their potential. Do you think that's because they bear a cultural inflection lent to them by their roots in Protestantism and uh, sort of American culture of the nineteen thirties, more broadly? Well, again. Uh, 
when you look at the personal histories of people engaged in addiction, including their founders, they were all traumatized people, but they had no concept of trauma, and trauma wasn't much talked about in those days f for interesting reasons. And it is very much rooted in that Protestant, uh, almost fundamentalist religious concept. That's okay. I just wish they were a bit more flexible about things. So that's not the area. That's not the only area where I find a lack of flexibility, and we can talk about other areas as well, but it is rooted in that fundamentalist religious concept of sin almost, uh, rather than, uh, to me there's no sin, to me there's human dysfunction that's a response to trauma. So I don't, I don't have a moral sense of it. Uh, but but they seem to come out of a very moralistic tradition, mm. uh, which is laudable, but I think it's limiting. Why do you think that pain is not addressed in a conventional 12-step ideology? Because I think pain is it's painful. That's what I think it is. So, so it's easier to believe that I have this disease that I inherited, this disease model, rather than to recognize I wasn't loved the way I needed to be loved. I was hurt by the people that were supposed to love me. I was hurt by the people that did love me. Not only did I experience suffering then, I still carry the imprints of those suffering. In order to let go of those imprints, I have to take a real in-depth look at myself and uh, without judgment and, and, and with absolute curiosity. And I might experience severe distress as I look at that pain. Well, th those are difficult. That's the first, so the, per the first reason is individual. The second level is it keeps you from having to confront your family history. It's very painful to come into conflict with your family history. Even though trauma is not anybody's personal fault, it is passed through generations. And number three, we live in a society that in your own book you point out is largely designed around helping people escape from their daily consciousness. We don't want to talk about trauma in this society. Trauma is what keeps the economy going. So there's this personal, familiar, and social reasons. That's excellent. So you think, excuse me, we live in a culture that has a vested interest in sustaining a state of trauma and possibly the majority of people at some level are living on a stim with a stimulus response model that broadly fits the addiction paradigm, even if it ain't an extreme addiction such as substance misuse or an obvious one such as severe eating disorders. It may be through consuming, use of pornography, negative codependent relationships. Would you say that possibly many, many people are living in this way unaddressed? Well, there's a book entitled When Society is Addicted. And uh, I agree, this is a highly addicted society. In fact, large segments of the economy survive because people buy things that give them temporary pleasure but do them no good whatsoever in the long term. In fact, they're even harmful. I mean, we're going so far as to destroy the earth because of our addictions. Consumerism requires the addict mentality. It requires a cycle that cannot be surmounted by rationale. Exactly. Consumerism demands a mentality in which I fundamentally believe that I'm insufficient without this external fix. That's what consumerism relies on. So your understanding of addiction on a personal level can be extrapolated in a social analysis. Uh, you think that our society conforms to that idea. You would agree that it is an addicted society. 
Well, you point out the same thing in your book, Revolution, pretty much. And uh, my own next book, which will be entitled um, The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture, is going to make the same point. In other words, when you look at a society, you can't just look at it from the inside. You have to look at, if you're an anthropologist from Mars looking at the society, what would you see? And uh, what would you see is a society that, that creates artificial needs uh, rather than meeting people's genuine needs. It creates artificial needs, and it creates artificial needs because it, the economy relies on that. Whilst none of us would ever be able to claim the uh, mythical or uh, metaphorical aliens objectivity because obviously we're all a product of this society, how, accepting what you say, how can we ever individually or culturally overcome such a an imprisoning mentality? Well, uh, <clears throat> I think the 12 steps themselves, insofar as they go, are designed to help liberate people from an imprisoning mentality. And uh, I think that it, that's one example of transformation. So uh, there are many forms of transformation, some spiritual, some psychological, uh, some political. But it always depends on letting go of a certain point of view or, or getting outside a certain point of view and and uh, seeing its limitations. In your earlier rejection of a moral framework, or at least your querying of a moral framework as resourced through 12 steps, you said that no one ought be condemned through a kind of moral paradigm that is an expression of human dysfunction, I think was the phrase you used. I sensed there a an optimistic and even utopian view of the human psyche as a kind of ultimately benign and loving destination. Well, interesting that you would pick up on that uh, from the little that I said, but it is the way I see it. But it's not utopian. Um, it's actually evolutionary. Uh, human beings would not have survived with anything other than um, a compassionate relationship to one another. The baby would not survive. And no human infant would survive unless there was a natural drive in the parents to be compassionate and empathetic towards that infant. Even rats are wired for compassion. If you look at laboratory rats and look at their stress hormone levels when they're watching other rats being hurt, they'll be more stressed when the other rat is being hurt than, than when they're being hurt themselves. Uh, because mammalians are wired for empathy. Without that, there's no social life and there's no caring, taking care of the young. So, so it's not a utopian view. It's actually a, an experiential and, and, and evolutionary-based view. In those terms is what you describe as empathy a challenge to the individualistic worldview the boundary of the individual may not be uh, that the individual may not actually be contained within the skin if we're hormonally or biochemically experiencing the pain of others what indeed is separation well what happens is we're born with this vulnerable openness for the most part now, some people are already um, wounded in the womb as, as you know as, as, as fetuses and as, as babies but most of us are born with a <coughs> vulnerable vulnerability and an openness to the degree that that's hurt or not responded to or not received we shut down and now we're looking at the world from the shut down limited individualistic perspective in which um, we're driven to be egotistical because that ego is seen as our self-defense. 
but that hurts us at the same time because it, con- it goes contrary to our true nature. So the more egotistical we become, the more successful we might even become in the world, in terms of worldly terms, but the less happy we become. So there's a contradiction between that constricted ego, which is a product of trauma, and our true selves. That's yeah. how I see it, and that's my understanding of human beings. That fits neatly with a spiritual idea of egoic surrender uh, in that the ego is a kind of construct for protection as opposed to an essential or natural uh, aspect or realization of self. Well, my problem is, I don't know about you, but uh, I agree with you, and that, that is fits perfectly with that idea. I just don't know how to, sur- I don't know how to do surrender. I mean, whenever I've tried to do surrender, it's the ego trying to surrender, and I can't do it. So surrender is almost a, a thing that um, happens by grace. I'm still waiting for my moment of surrender. I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for my moment when my tight, egotistical ego says, yes, God, this is the way it is, thank you, you know? I, I'm, I've known people, I've seen people do it, I've seen people experience it, I've, I've, I've marveled at it, I believe in it. But my own egoic structure is tight enough that I, I have a hard time actually uh, being that way. So yes, in principle, yes. In practice, hmm. it's not such an easy thing, not for me anyway. When we talk of saints, is this what do you think we're dis- identifying or diagnosing that the saint has tr- transcended these egoic restrictions and is able to experience the world as, or at least human relationships, through a kind of a frequency of oneness as, a, as opposed to a frequency of o- opposition. I believe when you're talking about the true saints, that's, that's what you're talking about. Um, and and uh, saints of any religion or any spiritual modality, it not, not, doesn't need to be in a Christian tradition, it could be Hindu, it could be Sufi, it could be Muslim, it could be... Uh, uh, Jewish, of course, but but the, the, the idea of don't saint give Jewish, and of course, yeah, yeah. Hey, given what we're saying about the likely interconnectivity, uh, as demonstrated by empathy, that it could not saintliness, enlightenment, or grace be frequencies accessible to all, as opposed to qualities confined to or demonstrated by individuals. Oh, just as I think that the abject uh, heroin-dependent, uh, HIV-ridden addict is a potential in all of us, so do I think the sainthood is. In other words, I do think there's these frequencies, in fact, I would say neurological circuits in the brain that, I catch, that can actually deliver those qualities of what we call sainthood. And um, it's very interesting to see the conversation around that because from a skeptical, uh, doggedly atheistic point of view, you will see these uh, saints as epileptics and people are having strange experiences. But actually, their just brains are more open to certain frequencies that are available to all of us. I, I, it's hard to get there. There's too much ego in the way, too much neurological noise in the way. Hmm. But I do think that's where they get to. So somebody like Hildegrand, you know, who's this 12th century musician and saint and so on, who's considered being an epileptic, I don't think she was epileptic, epileptic at all. I just think she was a clear soul who was able to resonate with those frequencies. Yeah, I sometimes think like if you actually knew Saint Francis, he would be a pain in the ass. Like letting animals in the house, won't yeah. put no shoes and yeah. socks on, crying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd, be, it'd be hard for the average egoic person to be around that, I would think. Although, 
sometimes these people do manifest such compassion and such love that people are just drawn to be around them just 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 because they want to experience some of that energy given that we are discussing these two apparent poles of enlightened transcended states uh, and saints and the uh, down at heel junkie yeah. do you think that there is some interrelationship between those two phenomena well there can be and if you look at some of the greatest saints they actually had to work through their own addictions like saint ignatius of loyola he was an addict he had to work saint augustus yeah i know augustus certainly was and he talks about it he was yeah. probably a sex addict. I couldn't tell. Yeah, exactly I read what. a little bit of it. He sounded yeah. like he was up to all sorts. Yeah, and Saint Ignatius was. Ignatius. And uh, a, a lot of the Hindu people, you know, the, the, because it's precisely that working through that purifies the soul, so that then you can ascend to those higher regions. Um, now, I think grace is involved as well, but uh, whatever grace is, but nevertheless. It's not unusual to see somebody who's absolutely down. I mean, St. Paul himself describes himself, you know, as a tight, uh, compulsive, hate-ridden, uh, narrow individual, and then he has this experience, and all of a sudden he opens to a higher reality. Yes. It's, grace seems like an impersonal force that may transcend these material ideas of neurological pathways and may mm. be extra individual or beyond self i suppose maybe we'll rein it in a little bit for a moment so like well, with your um like i went that place in vancouver is it vancouver where you used yeah. to man that place was hardcore like mm. outside it was some like i went there to visit there's people banging up downstairs inject yeah. using intravenous drugs there's people like uh with like rats on them like as pets it was that intense down at heel atmosphere it was a little bit uh frightening even for someone who's somewhat familiar with those kind of environments and it felt to me like a great despair i wonder how you find hope in such environments well, so I worked there for twelve years, and uh, the first. Oh, and what's the name of it again, just in case? Well, the, ho the 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 society I worked for was called the Portland Hotel Society, and then I worked at Insight, which is North America's first supervised injection site, for a couple of years, and and associated facilities. But it was all in that same area, mm. and it's as you describe it. It's it's out of Dante's Hell. It's one of the circles out of Dante's Hell. And, and I mean, as you look at the lives of the individuals there, uh, in 12 years of work, I had not a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. I mean, they all suffered tremendous torment as children uh, and beyond the range of average torment. We all suffer in childhood, most of us do. These people suffered extremely. Which also meant that their addictions were extreme and they were quite willing to sacrifice love life relationship health their teeth their their looks their their wealth their everything about them just for the next hit mm -hmm. they were that desperate to escape from reality because reality had been so cruel to them and that's on the one hand on the other hand 
I saw tremendous love down there. I saw tremendous creativity. They're all very interesting people. Very often, they're very creative people. And, and, and there's a good reason for that, by the way. There's a tremendous relationship between addictions and creativity, and mental illness and artists, uh, you know, writers and painters and musicians and so on. And, and the link, I believe, is sensitivity. The more sensitive you are, the more creative you're going to be. But the more sensitive you are, the more you're going to suffer as well because you're gonna feel the pain more. In other words, you'll have more of a need to escape from the pain. Yeah. And that escape from pain is what drives addictions. It's also what drives a lot of mental illness. So, uh, so a lot of them were artists. Uh, they were very interesting people. And the, the, the thing that one appreciated the most about them is they lied and they cheated and they manipulated. They had to in order to get their next hit, but they didn't pretend to be anybody else than they were. They were absolutely willing to be themselves. They're liars. I'm in a, yes, uh, yes, doc. I stole your cell phone. What else could I do? I'm an addict. You know. I mean, they were utterly willing to be themselves, mm. and and that's refreshing because most of us have a very overt sense through a lot of uh, our pathways throughout the social circles is that people might be nice, but nobody's quite themselves, and there, there's no pretense to be anybody else other than who they are. So that's tremendously refreshing. So it was both challenging and painful and also tremendously exciting and a privilege to work with them. So the privilege, you found it resonant, did you, to be around people that like would steal your phone and admit it? There's something about that, what you felt like it was you were dealing with something real that made you feel what anchored, connected. Well, I mean, the fact is people are stealing from me all the time. They're called advertisers and they're called uh, food companies and they're called uh, car makers. But but they pretend to be doing it for my own good. Because <laughs> these guys would steal, and yeah, yeah, I stole from you, Doc. Uh, what else could I do? I'm an addict. I stole your phone. But, it was for your own good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, but they don't. It's they, damaging to your ear. It's radiation. Uh, in any case, they. Um, the other thing about them, of course, is that I've well recognized in myself the same patterns. So, I had not suffered like they had suffered. I had not been driven to the same extremes. I was a successful middle class well-respected, good-earning physician, and yet there was nothing in them that I didn't see in myself. And so it was actually validating to be with that because it's so authentic. And, and uh, sometimes when people read my book and they say, well, how can, you, how can you compare your shopping addiction to the heroin addicts? I don't compare it. I just saw the similarities. But when I talk to my addicted clients about it, that look, I've got the same patterns. They would just laugh their head. They would just shake their head and laugh and they say, hey doc, you're just like the rest of us, aren't you? They had no problem seeing the similarities. So it was just refreshing again to be with people where you don't have to pretend anything either. Yes, yes. So it, do you, it made you feel that you could be an aspect of yourself that may not be realized in ordinary discourse where a kind of disingenuousness is required. I can acknowledge that part of myself and, and, and know that it'll be understood. Um, and, and, and again, at the same time, it, I felt such closeness with them because I, because I could tell that the only difference between them is that they had suffered more than I had and therefore they had greater need to escape from their suffering. That's the only difference. So you completely remove morality and condemnation from the vocabulary around addiction. When we see street homeless people... This is not a moral failing. This is simply more suffering. That's what we are witnessing, that the only thing that separates me from a homeless street addict is different. I've had less suffering, better opportunities, more people stepping in and helping. 
I've either had less suffering or I've had more help with my suffering than they mm. have received, one or the other. Yes. But, but morality, nobody chooses to be an addict, nobody chooses to be a, a street dweller. Um, if you look at the large-scale uh, studies, uh, sociological studies, the more adversity in childhood, the greater risk for addictions, period. And if you look at how the human brain develops, uh, suffering itself shapes the misshapes, distorts the healthy development of the human brain. So when we talk about addiction as a brain disease, well, yeah, it might be, but what creates the brain disease is suffering. Uh, 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 during the early period of vulnerable and, and, and burgeoning uh, brain development, the kind of emotional and social influences that act upon the brain will have an impact on the actual circuitry and the chemistry of the brain. Now, you describe yourself, I think, as a cocaine and a heroin addict, um, amongst other things. Yes. Well, if you actually look at well, what did the cocaine do for you, it, it did something for you that, that was lacking in your life, uh, vitality, a sense of connection, perhaps a sense of presence, perhaps uh, uh, vitality, something that we all want, the heroin possibly made you feel less pain, made you feel more uh, connected with other people, made you give you more inner peace. These are all qualities that are part of human existence, normally speaking. And the question is, what happens to us in childhood that robs us of these qualities? One other more broad yet personal observation, Gabor, is that it, regardless of the substance, just being able to induce change yeah. is something like like even if it's like you know whether it's uh, an amphetamine high or an opioid low or pornography or shopping or whatever it is the ability to just change the state even when you know that the likely outcome will ultimately be detrimental that's actually the key to addiction is that what addiction is is an attempt to regulate your inner state through an external behavior so there's something about the inner state that's unbearable. So for example, when I'd engage in my shopping addiction, um, I would be I'd be activating the same brain circuits as the cocaine addict when he shoots uh, uh, his stimulant because I have a high level of dopamine in my brain. And when there's dopamine in my brain, I'd feel alive and present and focused. My ADHD disappears. I can remember everything. I'm fully focused. I'm fully present. That's a wonderful state to be in. The sex addict is not after sex. The sex addict is after that temporary change that you just described. Yes. If sex addiction was about sex, the solution would be very simple. Marry another sex addict. <laughs> now you can have all the sex you want for the rest of your life. But it's not about that, is it? No. It's about that temporary state. It's about that sense of, oh, I'm wanted. Somebody want me. Somebody wants me. Somebody fresh wants me. I can prove, I can prove it again that I'm desirable. So it's about that temporary uh, state, that, 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 that regulating that unbearable state, that, that, that the addiction whether it's behavioral or substance related, lifts you out of temporarily. And that's what you want. That's what you're really after. So what I say about addiction, sorry if I'm speaking a bit too fast. I'm just excited to be here. Good. Uh, what the addict wants is not to be addicted. And, and it's when you're not craving that you're not addicted. So the, so, so, so the addict is actually after that temporary state of not being addicted when the craving is gone and yeah. there's some inner peace momentarily. That's why when you use, you go, oh, I've got to stop taking these drugs, man. It's you, terrible. I don't need it because at that moment you feel complete. And you, think, <laughs> you don't need this ever again until three minutes later you leave the store or, you, or, or your hit has, you know, your cocaine has abated in your system and then you have to use again because what you thought was completion mm. was only an external regulation. When it was heroin, I would like have, I would reflect 
right. after I'd used and just go, right, this isn't for me. This has got to stop. This is not a sustainable yeah. system. And more recently with pornography, as immediately post-ejaculation, I'm like, what on earth was that about? What a ridiculous way to live life. This can't be right. Sometimes laugh. Like, oh my God, who, who was that guy? I, w- I do the same thing with my uh, with my own addictive behaviors, is, is, is that immediately... Uh, you think you'd never need it anymore because you feel complete. Mm. And then comes the remorse of what have I done? <laughs> and then you think, I don't need to do this ever again. <laughs> and then by the time I'm home, I'm running back to the store again to get the next thing that I didn't buy. So it restores a kind of a perspective that's uh, more manageable. It's a successful way of regulating. When I went into treatment, actually, um, a a woman that was a counselor there said um, to me, well done, well done finding drugs. You found a way of keeping yourself alive. But I've said that to people as well. Oh, is it? I do. uh, the, 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 The clients that I had in the downtown east side, if it wasn't for drugs, they would have killed themselves a long time ago. Mm. A, lot, a lot of them, or destroyed themselves in other way, so that uh, the addictions, damaging and, and even as lethal as they can be, did at some point serve a function, and I, I acknowledge that function. Uh, when, when somebody comes to me who's addicted, I don't tell them what's wrong with it, they already know. I ask them what's right about it. What does it do for you? And what it does for them is a perfectly valid aspiration. The addict just wants to feel like a human being. And uh, we already know, I mean, the, the Eckhart Tolle quote that you and I both employed, addictions begin in pain and end in pain. So we know the pain that the, in, the addiction will induce, but let's look at first at the life-saving pain relief that they provide. Let's validate it. Not mm. validate the particular behavior, but validate the intention and the emotional drive. Mm. We can't understand what people use until we get what they get from the addiction. That's a very interesting analytical device to Mm. observe the process independent of the object. That's right. That's very interesting. Um, Your grandparents, am I right in saying, survived, uh, fled the Holocaust? They did not. No, my grandparents did not survive. They were killed. My my grandparents were killed in Auschwitz. Yeah. Oh Jesus Christ! So what? uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Okay. Um, What about? your views on inherited trauma mm. and how trauma can travel between or through generations. Can you explain that, please? It's interesting. Just yesterday on BBC Morning Radio, there was an interview with Edith Egger, who is a 91-year-old uh, therapist who was probably on the same train as my grandparents when uh, they were taken to us. She was a teenager. They were in middle age. I myself lived in the ghetto of Budapest with my mother uh, for a year under the Nazis, uh, barely surviving. And so that, uh, in my case, it's not just multi-generation as I experienced it directly. Ah. But, but, um, but mostly what I experienced was the trauma of my mother. So as an infant, I knew nothing about Nazis but, but, uh, or, or, the, or the looming genocide around us to which we almost uh, fell victim. What I knew is my the depression, terror, um, despondency uh, of, of my mom. And that had a deep impact on my psyche. Um, we also know, as you suggest, that trauma can be passed on multi-generationally. And it's passed on both in psychological terms in that my own children grew up in a very middle-class home and a very bland, peaceful part of the world called Vancouver, British Columbia, outside the downtown east side. 
but I passed on my trauma to them, and uh, not, bec- not not meaningfully or not deliberately, but simply because any trauma that one generation holds that they haven't worked through will be passed on to the next. How time. are you, Gabor Mate, not processing your trauma? How am I not processing? Yeah, because like if you're not doing it, that's like Steve Jobs going, "I couldn't get my phone to work." That's another traumatized person, by the way, yeah. who whose cancer has everything to do with the childhood trauma that he experienced. But that's another book and another story. Um, because I was in my thirties and I, I was a driven workaholic doctor. Yeah. Now, why was I a driven workaholic doctor? Because the message I got as an infant is that the world didn't want me. Now, how do you deal with not being wanted? You make yourself needed. So if you're traumatized and if you don't think you're lovable, my God, go to medical school. Now they're going to want you all the time. When they're dying, when they're being born, every moment in between. And that's highly addictive because mm. you get the validation all the time. Now, when I'm always working and I'm kind of alienated and listless at home, what message do my kid get, my child gets? Well, that they're not wanted and they're exactly. not valuable. So until I realized that I was traumatized, which really wasn't in my late 30s and mid 40s, until I began to see the impacts of my trauma and found it unbearable in my life, and until I began to see the trauma of my clients and how um, addiction and mental illness and a lot of physical illness were actually manifestations of childhood trauma. So until I began to both personally experience it and work it through, and there I was a successful physician, a national columnist for a newspaper, director of a palliative care unit at a major hospital, success on any terms, depressed, unhappy, workaholic, shopaholic, in a marriage that was struggling with children that were afraid of me, until I began to realize the impacts of my trauma, and I began to realize that it didn't have to be this way, that there were reasons for it, and I started looking for those reasons. So I started waking up fairly late in life, it seems sort of like uh, sort of ironic to the point of almost like a fable that you might be in your office studying the impact <laughs> of childhood trauma and neglect. Keep that fucking noise down downstairs. <laughs> Trying to work on a theory for the impact of parental <laughs> damage on. Trauma. Well, of course, the problem with me, as with most physicians, is the average doctor, even now, I would assert the same thing about British medical schools without knowing for sure. But the average physician still doesn't even hear the word trauma in all their years of education. It's not that they don't take a lecture on it or a course on it. They don't even hear the word. Nor, do, of course, do they deal with their own trauma. Nor are they imp- impelled or in, in invited to do that. So we're actually looking at these manifestations of trauma, whether in physical illness or mental illness or addiction, and we don't, or childhood uh, behavior disorders like ADHD and so on, and we're not... St- seeing what we're seeing because we don't have the the vision for it with our glasses are smudged with a kind of narrowly biological interpretation of everything wow. and so so I could I could see all this stuff without knowing what I was seeing mm. it, it took some waking up on my when you say something like a narrow biological interpretation of you know sort of reality or medicine or whatever it, you were particularly diagnosing it makes me feel that there is a necessity for faith or the unknown or a kind of openness to super rational solutions to the problems of the material world that previously have been addressed through religion but of course we're aware of what the last 
century was meant for most religious ideology that they are sort of conflicted or compromised through violence or paedophilia or the hell it is this week you know so how do we reintegrate spiritual ideas into the well-being of humans and do you think that's what we should be doing well, so first of all, I think what you're pointing to is that traditionally throughout human societies, traditional societies, um, a more holistic, broader, if you like to call it spiritual perspective, was part of the um, armamentarium of healers. So that so that uh, that we're more than just our, our biology, and that we're connected to nature and to a or to a larger entity, creation, and so on. That was just taken for granted, and that people are affected by the community that was taken for granted. Now, with the rise of Western medicine and really all the miraculous advancements of Western medicine and all the extraordinary results that we can achieve with our technology or pharmacology, we've lost uh, the the broader perspective. And so what's required is a reintegration. What keeps us that from happening partly is our very success. We're so bloody good at what we do as physicians, at many of the things that we do, that we don't look at the things that we don't do so well. And we're rather arrogant. Mm. Uh, not in the sense that we think we know everything, but we do tend to think that what we don't know is not worth knowing. So, <laughs> so, so, so we don't open ourselves up to looking at other perspectives. And yet, you know, in the last 10 years, I myself have become interested in shamanic modalities, and, and I've learned a lot from them. Now, that doesn't make me surrender the value that I received from my Western, highly advanced medical education. It just shows me that there are different dimensions to human experience that, that are well worth looking at because we're failing at treating addiction, we're failing at treating mental illness, we're failing at treating chronic illness for that matter, and I think not because we don't have the science. And what's interesting is, is that there's a lot of science that, that, that shows the unity and the interconnection uh, that we ignore. So, so, what like? So, well, for example, we know that the emotional centers in the brain are inseparable from the immune system and the hormonal apparatus and the nervous system and the gut and the cardiovascular system. So I've written a book about that. It's called When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, which will be published here in the UK next year. Keep writing these books, didn't you? Where I point out that physical illness like rheumatoid arthritis or cancer are not abstract or isolated biological incidents they actually have to do with people's emotional and spiritual lives yes. uh, and and that they could be affected positively by taking a broader view there's all kinds of science for that the science is not even controversial but it's not taught in the medical schools why well, that's a broader social question. Um, to do with economics and the finances and the vested interests in pharmacology and maintaining the status quo because of financial reasons. All that, all that. But even more fundamentally, for this society to function, it has to separate the soul from the body because we wouldn't treat people the way we do if they had souls. <laughs> that's amazing. Because of uh, post-enlightenment rationalism. That's exactly what it is. And, and, and that rationalism means cutting off from the heart. And so basically, Western science very much starts from the neck up, and it can do a lot of great things with, uh, with the intellect and the hyper-rationality and, the, and the, the research and so on, but it also leaves a short of our humanity. And, and, and that integration is not taking place because it threatens the social structure. We wouldn't treat people the way we do if they had souls. Tell me what else you learned from these shamanic modalities, please, Gabor. Well, um, 
Well, so the first time I did, uh, there's a plant called ayahuasca. Do you mean you took drugs? <clears throat> I took it? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah. Drugs. I, I did. Uh, t t 10 years ago. So, so I'm just going to make a quick phone call. Uh, could you call the police, please, James? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, go on. So you no, I, I work with it. I lead retreats with it. Oh, it's work, is it? Yeah, it's, 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 I do. Because, because I found that it can take people to places where the best of psychotherapy doesn't take them in 15 years. They can go there in one week. Uh, no, it's not a panacea. It's not for everybody. But again, I've learned to experience the tremendous depth and breadth of human experience through the shamanic practices. They, they have not displaced my medical knowledge, but they've broadened it. Yes, I would not query that. It's perfectly reasonable to me that science, on all levels, through all disciplines, has earned its place in human culture. Yeah. But the exclusion of new realms that would be as unimaginable to us as the new sciences which we take for granted would have yeah. been to medieval or exactly. neolithic man are worthy of exploration can you explain to me verbally your experiences with plant medicine before i do can i ask you a question yep as a 12 stepper what does it make you feel when I talk about plants? Like I want to, to get high on plants right now. <laughs> no, I'm literally getting a contract drawn up. Where I go, well, Gabor Mate actually said, like, I'll call my sponsor and go, like, Gabor Mate goes that it's really good. Like, I'm like I'll use it because it makes me because I want God. I want God right in my brain right now. Well, you don't need medicine to get plant in your God in your right now. You know, get it to a church. You know, <laughs> well, what was I going to say? Uh, because twelve steps tend to be very suspicious of the of the plant medicines because they see what they say is, what is the substance addict doing using another substance to get high? So what fir the first thing that has to be understood is that everything is a matter of set and setting of the intentions that you're using it and the context in which you use it. So that uh, you have to really honor the traditions. It's not a question of go off, folks, and start doing stuff in your living rooms with your buddies. If you're going to take this seriously, you have to respect the traditions. And there's ways and context in which these substances can open up the mind, can open up the soul in ways that will enrich your life in the right setting. They also have certain dangers associated with them, which also have to be respected, and that's why you need the guidance in the right setting. Having said that, um, again, uh, well, the first time I did ayahuasca, i tell you what I experienced. It, it was in Canada, actually, where it's not legal, but people use it. And uh, there was a Peruvian shaman, shaman there chanting. And what happened into the ceremony, having tasted this bitter, awful-tasting concoction, I had tears of gratitude rolling down my cheeks, tears of love. And they weren't love for my wife or for my children or anything in particular. They were just love. And I realized how my heart had been shut down against love all my life. And, and I realized that my heart had been hurt so early in my life that shutting down was the only rational, it was the only natural response. But that same shutting down kept me limited and imprisoned. And so with this ayahuasca experience, I experienced an expansion of my heart. So I got why it might be helpful to work with it. In the case of addiction, which is all about the heart being shut down, and then you're trying to substitute what only an, uh, with an, what only an open heart can give you to all these addictive behaviors. So since then, I've seen much 
very remarkable transformation in people's physical illnesses and their addictions and so on. It's not a panacea. Nothing works for everybody. It's just one more modality that uh, we are foolish not to explore. Yes. I like what you said about respecting a ritual, ceremonial uh, context, because I sometimes feel more broadly, not in particular in relation to addiction, that the stripping away of ceremony, ritual and means for acknowledging the sacred are one of the reasons we are a, a, a culture and a people adrift. I'm of course interested in personal empirical experience of the sublime and what is all-encompassing love but the sublime where love becomes all where all attempts to separate the self through rationale or fear dissipate through the glorious oneness of total right Right. i take it that's an experience you've had yourself well a bit but like I, when I was younger I like took uh, hallucinogens but of course when you <coughs> talk about context the way that young people in Grey's Essex where I'm yeah. from take acid yeah. is like one of your mates gets acid yeah. and then you take acid like and, like you know and if you're me you like think oh my god nothing is real my entire construction of reality has been an illusion right. there is this there are powerful forces that the rational world the material world doesn't have the resources or the vocabulary to explain yeah. no i have no mentors i have no shaman we have no wise women no yeah. one is explaining that to me we are given a template and structures that turn me into a commodity my energy into a commodity my consciousness into a commodity and none of these things that i'm feeling or i suspected i had the capacity to feel even before this was unlocked by this substance are catered for you you have nothing to do with that so it just sort of spills out into a sort of wild psychedelia that you don't know how to deal with subsequently through yoga and meditation i experienced you know i was surprised when you said and i would dispute what you said about not having felt grace and not having ever felt freed from the shackles of your tight egotism you used the phrase a bit like that earlier um you know but like for me i experience it fleetingly if i kind of do what i'm told if i you know sort of help people and be kind and put you know things basics you know um and uh, when I feel it, I rush off it, and I am reminded of sort of like the kind of Christian ideas that I would kind of would previously refute. And I mean, literally Christian, as in go hang out with poor people, go yeah. hang out yeah. with the homeless, go be loving, go do yeah. God's work. What would God do if God were here? And you know, when you talk of your literal biographical experiences of being with homeless people this is a sort of realization of love and a way of accessing sort of love and connection and then when you sort of alloy that to these what you call shamanic modalities one can start start to form an abiding perspective that is both social and personal and one imagines that perhaps we have created through society for what is society but a pattern patterns that reward behaviors inner patterns within us that are either negligent or detrimental or toxic or psychopathic. Do you think of many of the people that are in positions of power and the structures that surround them and the the structures that they perpetuate, that these are the product of negative 
malevolent thinking and that a kind of spiritual shift taking place on an individual level if significantly spread could bring about the kind of change that's required and indeed would be called revolution <laughs> well so when i look at people who are in power and it's interesting because i was listening to your podcast jordan peterson and he and, and he was kind of um rationalizing the existence of hierarchies <clears throat> and but when i look at actually who forms the apex of the hierarchy in our society it's largely traumatized people um <clears throat> for example, if you believe you live in a horrible world, how are you going to be? You have to be aggressive, grandiose, paranoid, uh, selfish. In other words, you'll be the president of the United States. <laughs> be be because he's the one who said in so many words that the world is a horrible place. And that's the world he lives in. The Buddha said 2,500 years ago that with our minds we create the world. Yeah. <clears throat> but my contention is that before the, with our minds we create the world, the world creates our minds. And Trump's brain was formed in a family where he was demeaned and punished and, and attacked and uh, humiliated by his father. And, and so he believes he lives in a horrible world. That's what he acts out. And his brother dragged himself to death. So it's these traumatized people. Now his opponent, I could go into that, was also traumatized. And but what, so you're saying that in Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, there were two traumatized people oh, the the fighting to govern a traumatized world. That's exactly what I'm saying. And, 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 and Hillary's trauma showed up in when she had pneumonia, she wouldn't even acknowledge it. Because as a child, she'd been taught she had to suck up her pain. She mustn't be vulnerable. She puts up with the philanderings of her husband, who's as much of an uh, 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 explorer of women as Donald Trump ever was, just not as egregious about it. And she still justifies it. And so she, she, her message is to, to become inauthentic and to suck a lot up, suck it all up. And that's her form of trauma. I could talk about British politics. Go on. I, I could talk about... Might as well do everyone now. Uh, You're on a roll. I could talk about this repressed person uh, who is so uh, in denial of her own trauma that she's willing to traumatize the most vulnerable people in society. Her name is Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Uh, what was her trauma do you think it's good, this, I'm enjoying this so you sort of are a bit like in the matrix when Neo sees everything's made out of numbers you look at people and you see all their trauma and damage that, that's and what I see that's what I see I saw in her a tremendously repressed person um, I saw I, then you have a bland faced schoolboy uh, who's willing to murder hundreds of thousands of people and never take any responsibility for it uh, and, and still doesn't deal with the impact of it. His name is Tony Blair, who's quite willing to go to uh, bomb drops and drop bombs on, on, on Arabs far away and all do it in, 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 in the service of lies that a school child could see through. And these are traumatized people, otherwise they couldn't do it. They wouldn't be that split. And these are the people that our society rewards with power. Well, that's a sign of a traumatized society. That's my next book. Yes, good that. That's going to be a smasher, that one. I'm banging to that already. i got to write it first. You've done the hard work. <laughs> You've come up with a concept. The rest writes itself. Now, what about, can we carry on with this game of um, mugging off the powerful? Because I'm loving this. So, look, would, can we say like a, like... Barack Obama, like, you know, that there is a continuum. Oh, Obama, Obama is a fascinating case. Go on. People talk about Trump is destroying Obama's legacy. I don't think so. Trump is Obama's legacy. Yes. I read his biography. He's a person that's very chameleon-like. He can uh, not deliberately and not even necessarily 
consciously or manipulatively identify with whoever. So, so, so he can sound like a white man or he can sound like a black man, depending on where he's at. So he'll appeal to both. But I think his biggest, his biggest sin was to have enrolled a lot of people in the possibility of transformation and change without delivering any of it. Furthermore, do you think that the inability of these individuals to manifest real change is a demonstration that what we have are deeply entrenched and traumatized systems that are predicated on unconscious choices, unconscious drives, and that the system cannot, will not, alter itself from within itself but will sustain itself and it's only sort of new radical ideas that can alter it well any system is designed in such a way as to make change impossible that, that's just the nature of any organization any system so that so that so that doesn't matter what individual so even if obama came along fully committed to his uh, agenda which i believe on some level he was sincere about there would have been a million reasons why the system and how the system would have prevented him from carrying out his agenda. But let me ask you something, or, or, or assert something. Obama got into power funded heavily by Wall Street. Now is Wall Street stupid? Or do they, <laughs> or, or do they know which side their butter, bread is buttered on? They knew what they were getting. They didn't buy into the whole pre-change kind of thing. They knew exactly what a, what a facile and uh, an efficient servant of the status quo he would be. And no sooner does he get into power than he bails out Wall Street. Yes. Uh, he, he, was trans he was responsible for one of the greatest transfers of wealth upwards in history. And, 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 and so the system knew what they were getting. It's just that the rest of us, because we wanted to believe in the positive side of his persona, we got sucked in. The system never got sucked in by him. Why this bewildered clinging to these narratives that have clearly been exposed as erroneous? Why now, post-Trump, do we? Why are we seeing from the uh, liberal establishment and a sort of a nostalgia for something that was basically about fifteen minutes ago, rather than an acknowledgement and a recognition of the need for meaningful, significant change that addresses the problems of essentially the poor? Well, when you look at um when you look at, say, American politics uh, or economics, uh, Obama was as ready as anybody to kill people abroad. Um, he was as ready as anybody to, to send troops overseas. Um, it's no different than American history has always been. Um, he was smoother about it. He was more urbane about it. He was more articulate about it. He also knew how to speak to people's better sides. Along comes a Trump, and he's egregious. He's a highly traumatized, utterly self-unrestrained, uh, uh, troubled schoolyard bully. And so it's offensive to the sensitivity, the sensibilities of the liberal establishment to have somebody like Trump represent them. Yes. When it comes to genuine policy, there's no difference between these people. It's just that uh, the system wants people who can make it more palatable. And Trump makes it very unpalatable. Yes. And so Trump has woken us up. But it, unfortunately, a lot of the li liberal outrage has been at Trump personally rather than at the policies yes. and rather than at the system that he represents no worse or no better. In fact, he represents it more worse 
then you know uh, even a Bush or a Clinton or a, or an Obama certainly can be much more effective in representing the system than Trump is. And and that's what Trump's sin is. Trump's sin is not in what he does. Trump's sin is in his personal egregious. In your face, dysfunction. Is it that Trump is not an anomaly? Trump is revelation. Trump reveals. That's exactly what Trump does. And that's why they can't forgive him. Yes. Uh, Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's how how personally I see it. I think. And and by by the way, I'm speaking of all of them are traumatized people. And when Obama was abandoned by his father, and he idealized his father in his book. Yeah, Songs My Father. Yeah, or, or, or. I forget what the title of it was. It's something quite sentimental, like yeah, songs yeah, by father. But 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 he was a traumatized person, and then his mother was a highly troubled individual, and he was brought up by his white grandparents. He, this guy suffered, but he's he lacquered his suffering with this with with this patina of of rationality. What you're saying is a kind of heresy of the sort of dominant worldview. While we are sort of experiencing a kind of apparent rise of what used to be regarded as right-wing thinking in terms of nationalism, persecution of, you know, religious groups, for example, uh, I feel, and I've heard uh, Slavoj Žižek speak to this also, that the failing is of the left in its abandonment of conventional... Uh, indigenous working class people regardless of color race or religion that the liberal project abandoned working class people in favor of shallow identity politics i'm not saying that identity politics are shallow in themselves i'm saying that they were shallow in their intentions that we weren't seeing transgender media figures saying we've got to do something about transgender we you know we've seen people using these devices to persecute malign and alienate working class people and vilify them well, the the transfer of uh, wealth, the, or I should say, the accelerated transfer of wealth and power to the top one percent or less, uh, began uh, not under Trump. It began long before Trump, and it was continued under Trump. But it, he didn't initiate it. Um, the suppression of indigenous people in my own home country of Canada, where indigenous people make up thirty percent of the jail population, they make up five percent of the general population. And the high degrees of addiction and and suicide and mental illness and ADHD and all these other problems in the in the indigenous population is horrendous in Canada. Uh, that didn't begin with any particular conservative politician. It's it's been a historical fact, and so the mm. the, the whole system has been based all along. I mean, you know, when you go to Trafalgar Square, you all these you see all these statues of mass murderers, <laughs> <laughs> people who. Uh, quite happily shot down tens of thousands of Indians in India, or 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 or, or who oppressed and massacred natives in Latin in 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 North America and elsewhere, and these are our heroes. And so we, uh, this society has been for hundreds of years based on the extirpation or the suppression of indigenous people and working people. There was an article in the Guardian last week I think or was it this week where they talk about how the Peterloo massacre was a shaping event in British history but how many British school children actually study the Peterloo massacre and who got killed in Peterloo and why were they killed uh, here in Britain in the, it was it the 1830s yes we need 
the myth of nation, the myth of national identity, the ongoing concealment of the blood upon which these myths are founded is obviously necessary because without the concealment, without the myth, you unravel the very the the legitimacy of the power structures if you say well what is britain other than a sort of an economic entity and a means for oppressing the poor what is america economic entity means for oppressing the poor series of myths that favor particular portions of the population and will conceal that fact at all costs i when what i notice about popular narratives in understanding a world that seems to me to be traumatized in a great deal of pain is the people that propagate the idea that either there is no better alternative available or things aren't that bad or things are improving are those people want shit to stay the same well basically and and if you look at what you say about nationality it's an addiction uh basically it, it makes you feel temporarily good you want to belong to something and then you end up doing all kinds of terrible things and so if you look at the phenomenon like the first world war this mass slaughter um, where to which there's monuments to the heroes, you know, in, in Britain, here in London, and in, in my country, Canada, in the States, everywhere. What was that all about? Why all these? Why did all these young people, how were all these young people induced to go and murder each other in, in, in such vast numbers and to do that for years and years and years and years? All because of this myth of nationality as opposed to an understanding of our common humanity. And the very few people in each of the country each of the countries, whether it's Germany, Russia, or Britain, or France, who actually stood up and said, no, we're, we're more than just people that belong to a nationality, we're human beings, they were jailed. Mm. And, and, and so that trend has continued, and uh, there's a huge um, respect in the, in the public media paid to people that provide ideologies that justify the, the status quo, Interestingly, some of them are Canadian. Uh, Steven Pinker has written a book called Enlightenment Now, basically telling us that the world has never been more wonderful than mm -hmm. it is now. Let's just ignore the starvation. Let's ignore the, the mass killings. Let's ignore the alienation, the burgeoning of mental illness. Let's, increase, let's, let's, let's ignore the increasing inequality. Let's ignore the fact that the top 50 people in the world own as much as the bottom 3.5 billion because it's all wonderful. It's better than it ever was. Well, that's, an, that's a fact of denial. And people who are in denial get a lot of play in this system. They get a lot of attention mm. because, of course, they support the status quo. So the common humanity that you personally felt during your ayahuasca experience, that, that sense of love, uh, an impersonal abiding love, not focused on the mandala of a particularly, particular family member, but an abiding, yeah. all-encompassing love, is an experience that, if we are not deliberately denied, is an experience that would not be helpful if large numbers of the population regarded their common humanity as a priority above any other trauma-induced allegiance to imaginary nation ideas structures that support the uh, he ongoing hegemony well if people actually got their common humanity so many things that are possible in this world will no longer be possible I mean so many negative things that are now considered uh, normal would be seen for the abnormal man uh, manifestations that they are how so, do we popularize these ideas uh, we write books <laughs> We go on podcasts. Uh, we do. I don't. 
I wish I could give you a non-glib answer to that. Mm. Um, I have no way of, Jesus said somewhere that those that, those that have ear will listen, and those that don't have ears, you know, they will not listen. And so all any one of us can do, all any one of us can do is to utilize whatever platform we've been fortunate enough to gain. You have a huge platform, I have a platform. Uh, it's whatever area you work in, it's wherever you can make your voice heard, you simply keep stating and looking and refining and purifying yourself as much as you possibly can mm -hmm. and speak the truth to as many people as you can and the rest is not up to you. The rest happens or it doesn't happen. There was a British, there was a British, I was gonna say a Jewish um, rabbi who lived a hundred years before Jesus and he said, uh, the task is not yours to finish, but neither are you free not to take part in it. And if not now, when? In other words, this task of bringing light to the world, it's been going on for thousands of years. There have been spectacular failures. They were called Buddha and Jesus. They lived, they died, and the world stayed, to use your favorite word, just as fucked as it ever was. But was their work in vain? It wasn't. And so you have to believe, I don't have to, I do believe in yes. this light that, that is inside human beings. And all animals can do is to, is to add a little candle to it as best we can. If this light is real, it will manifest, it will manifest, it will find its way through us. I suppose part of the challenge is that the external grid of reality accurately mirrors the inner traumatic grid of so many people's perception and therefore they would not perceive infidelity. If you experience the world as a traumatic place of unfairness and injustice and, and that injustice and that shit happened that shouldn't have happened, and then you see a world that mirrors that, then all is in alignment. Absolutely. And what we have then is uh, a social structure that, as I pointed in my book, uh, induces trauma in a lot of people. Therefore, it induces escapist addictive behaviors in a lot of people. And those inner trends line up with how society looks like on the outside so therefore all this looks all this looks perfectly normal and perfectly natural and that's why i said we have to become like an anthropologist from mars somebody comes from the outside and looks at the system what do we actually see i mean what an anthropologist does is they don't take the assumptions of the culture for granted they look at it from the outside and so we have to look at the assumptions of this culture from the outside. Don't take the assumptions of the culture for granted. No. What uh, are the assumptions of our culture? Well, for one thing, that human nature is evil. Uh -huh. or well, the, fuck, or the, or, is that one? Uh, That's terrible, because uh, of Protestantism. Yeah. Or, 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 or human nature is by nature competitive and aggressive. Because of uh, Darwinianism. Yeah, or, or selfish, you know, again, you know. Th these are the assumptions of the culture. Um, the assumption of the culture also is that, is that um, hate is some evil that has to be combated. But hate is not, hate can't be combated. Hate has to be met with light so that it, the darkness of hate can dissipate. You know, rather than fighting, in other words, there's all, we're always looking for enemies to fight. And, 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 and it's so easy to sell enemies in this culture. How much love will the bigoted and hateful require? Not that there is an external bigoted and hateful. I mean, they are merely us refracted. Well, exactly. So what that, do we do? That, that's the first point. All right.
That's the first point to recognize, is that when you're looking at these others, you're looking at yourself. Right, all right. Uh, but, you know, the Buddha has a the story about the Buddha where there's this mass killer comes up to kill the Buddha, and the Buddha just looks at him, and the man falls to his knees and says, who are you? You know, and, and becomes one of his most humble acolytes. You know, now, I don't know if it really happened or not, but but it, but it, but it's a metaphor for how uh, love can transform hate. That hate actually is not anybody's true nature. And 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 when Buddha looked at this man, all he saw was his true nature. He didn't see his behavior. And uh, which goes back takes us back to addiction. The way we treat addiction in a society, we confuse people with their behavior. We think they are their behavior. And all we have to do is punish or change or or or, or some way inhibit their behavior. No. We have to understand the human being that just wants to be loved, and that's why he's addicted. And so, how about we treat them with respect and love and support? How about we put our our, our behavior in line with the science and in, and, and in line with our, our 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 best intentions? When we talk about why the society fails to to handle so many things uh, properly, like the utter failure of the addiction treatment system in this country or in my country it's because we're not looking at real human beings. It's because we're looking just at be external behaviors. I can see only that we can only start with ourselves in a sense and at what is immediately around us. Yeah. It's quite obvious or well, in and, a sense. And the, the biggest work I've ever had to do has been with myself. And what I, what I certainly don't want to do is sit here and pretend that I've, I've got it. I've got this all worked out. I mean, I'm speaking some fine words here. I'm even impressed with myself. Yeah, you're doing really well. <laughs> you're coming you. across ever so nice. Yeah, I was such a nice guy. Ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 as I often say, I married my own lie detector. You know, and and uh, I still have an active ego that takes over, and I can be very selfish and you know aggressive and all this kind of stuff. Things to be aware of it, to be constantly curious about it. But where does yours kick off? Your ego and that. When does it kick off? Yeah, what ignites you? Uh, I could be envious of other people's success, for oh, example. Yeah, I hate that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Why don't they stop? Yeah. Um, I can't. I can be dissatisfied internally and blame it on somebody else. Ask my wife. Huh. Um, I can. Doesn't matter how much I get, I, I can always think it's somehow not enough. Yeah. You know? Uh, I can be experiencing resentment um oh, what do you do when you get a resentment what do i do yeah well if i'm caught up in it i just sit there and seethe but uh, <laughs> seethe in the old resentment <laughs> what else give it a good seething give you a good seething yeah. <laughs> uh, do you not have an inventory like a right resentment is against this person nature of resentment you know my what, part you know what i could do a lot worse than to do the daily moral inventory which step is that seven or six or we do four well the, the 10 is the daily one the, the, yeah four and five is the sort of biographical one right. to yeah, identify no, the patterns. i meant the daily one and 10. i could do worse than to do that but actually in a sense i do uh once i notice these states in myself and um, in, 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 there's a lovely phrase in, 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 in your book, uh, Recovery, and you talk about the divided self. And th what I'm realizing is what I've realized is we all have divided selves. We have many selves in it. In, in, inside myself, there's a lot of selves. I'm not really resenting. 
I didn't wake up this morning deciding to resent. That resentment just does itself. There's a part of me that resents. Now, I can get into a relationship with that part that resents. I can be compassionate with it. I can say, well, what's missing for you, sweetheart? You know, that's very different than in trying to control or suppress the resentment. So the thing is to actually get hip and, and, and conversant with our divided selves and, and, and to all the, accept all these parts and, and get into a relationship with them. So what I do with the resentment when I'm conscious, I get into a relationship with it. Uh, well, yeah, and see what it's trying to tell you. Exactly. When I uh, lived by a different myth, to construct my romantic partners, the yeah. myth being more one of adulation and yeah. abs uh, absolvement through love, you know, a kind yeah. of almost chivalrous idea. If this person is a representation of God, they will make me feel yeah. better. If I can somehow control them and hold them near me, I'll be okay. Exactly. When I had that, it was like the love, I realized just recently, that the love was almost like it was eating itself when it happened. So when it expired, I sort of felt a kind of a sort of nihilistic numbness. An emptiness, yeah. Yes, but no real grief. The reason I feel that my current love is different with my wife is it does not uh, vacillate or undulate. It has a marrow deep sense of peace to it. Well, interesting you should talk about that because my wife can't stand it when I look at her through these romantic... Uh, adulatory, uh, worshipful eyes. She's allergic to it because it's not about her. Uh. It's about this fantasy I'm trying to project on her. And she knows what the downside is going to be. She, she knows that my, when I shift, all of a sudden she's going to be this unsatisfying, uh, insufficient uh, frump. You might want to cut that, mate. Uh, who, 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 who lets me down in my expectations? <laughs> she wants me to love the real she, oh. exactly the way. And 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 again, you know, she's been a great teacher to me. And 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 and, and that romanticized view, she absolutely is allergic to. Yeah, for that very how reason. wise because it oh, yeah. is an illusion. It is not her. It's constructed and a self perpetuating right. yeah. idea. Check this. What am I going to do about bringing up these two kids? I've got two daughters. Oh, I'm yeah. probably going to have some more. How old are they? My older daughter Mabel will be two okay. on uh, Sunday. Guess what I was doing the other night? Well, it was last night, as a matter of fact. Uh, she was tired and having kind of tantrums. So I, like, she was starting to cry, and I goes. Do you think that you would stop crying if I gave you chocolate, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she went, chocolate? Like that. She would. She sort of agreed. Uh, my wife went, do not give this child chocolate as a means for addressing her emotional distress, which I obviously, you know, know already. Um, but I see that I do not like that child suffering. Well, no, hold on a second. So do you want me to deconstruct this for you? Yes. What were you feeling when she was crying? Inadequate. Okay, no, let me tell you something. Inadequate is not a feeling. Inadequate is a point of view. Uh, s sad? Okay, you're feeling sad. What do you feel when you think you're inadequate? You feel sad. Yeah. No. Is this the first time in your life that you felt inadequate? Yeah, it's never come up before. I've always <laughs> <laughs> just felt really great. In other words, what, what, how far does it go back with you? Always. Okay, in other words, you're projecting your childhood onto your child. That's that's what you were bringing to the room at that moment, okay? And and it was so unbearable for you. You had to give him chocolate. Chalk I can't see that again. Yeah, okay, yeah. Is that what it is? Okay. I can't see so that in, again. In other words, you're not ready to be with your daughter 
unless she makes you feel pleased unless oh, she makes man. you feel comfortable i'm not accusing you of that globally well, it sounds like I, it I'm, mate I'm, I'm, I'm saying recording that, this that's what showed up at that moment right what showed up at that moment is some pain that you haven't quite resolved in oh, no, my first addiction was chocolate well there you go and you talk about that and and so and so what your daughter needed was just a daddy who can be okay with her anger right not, so you not, just not, be there and you soak that shit up sweetheart you're really angry aren't you yeah you know right you just tell them they're angry and, 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 but but not but but not also what jordan peterson says because what jordan peterson says an angry an angry two-year-old needs to sit by themselves until their anger is over in other words the that bad advice it's uh it's 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 anti-child advice because, <laughs> because 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 what you're saying to the child is you're acceptable to me only under certain circumstances well, that's not a good look it's, it's not what you want no what you want is that child to be able to experience your anger and have that anger be accepted and not get stuck in it the way she's not get stuck in it is when somebody can hold it right so i can hold it you, you can you can actually hold her anger if you're not threatened by it if you do, if you're not taken back to your childhood state of sadness and sense of inadequacy you can totally well hold that child's anger. Right. That's all she needs from you. Right, to be able uh, to hold it. To be able to, and, and, and then if she can hold her anger, then she, later on, she won't need to turn to chocolate to soothe herself. So part of adulthood, I've fought for a while, struggled to put it into practice, is uh, an ability that when external things hit you, you don't then go, right, everyone, you're fine. Like you are able to go, okay, I can handle it, I can handle it. Maybe go to a mentor or something. Yeah and deal with it with them but you don't you know i don't you know start kicking the dog or shouting or being a problem manhood or womanhood or whatever is appropriate it is the is the state where the external world can be handled without you sort of passing on the virus of negative consequence well what you're saying is you neither have to act it in or push it down or act it out by 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 hitting somebody you can just be with it or you might or at least you can be conscious of it it's good to ask for a mentor's help that's fine but then you're taking responsibility for it. In other words, what an adult can do, which a child cannot do, and they should not be expected to be able to do before they're old enough for it, is to take responsibility for their own emotional they state. They can't take responsibility. They're literally not neurologically developed they, enough. And that's why it's so bad to punish kids, because you punish them for something that they're incapable of doing or not doing. Hmm. So this is why these timeout methods and these punitive methods don't work. We do not punish. All right. What about it, when it, she? Uh, it, when she? She's shaking the other one, the, the littler one. Yeah, in the bouncer, and she's shaking that. Okay. And I, like this morning, she was doing that. I was tired. I felt some guilt because of some addictive behaviour that I'd previously done. I felt low energy. The child is uh, shaking the bouncer, and I like want to control this very. I felt like a sort of a fascistic rush run through me of like, I want to control you. Well, first of all, it's great that you're that self-aware because you don't want to act from that fascistic rush. It's, it's good. There's nothing wrong with it being there. It's inside all of us. But as long as you're aware of it, it won't let, it, it won't control you. Now, it may be that your older child has some aggression towards the younger child. Why the hell would she not? Did she ask for somebody to come into the home and share her parents with her? Did she ask for the parental love to be divided between herself and somebody else? Why the hell should she love it? Why shouldn't she have some aggression around it? And so the question is, uh, how is she feeling at the moment? You say to her, no, sh you, can't sh you don't shake the baby. You say that, because you don't shake the baby. Uh, the baby's not for shaking. But you don't make her wrong for it, and you don't punish her for it. You simply intervene in a compassionate way 
not from your fascistic impulses. <laughs> because not we are, we are, right no because fascistic <laughs> yeah. impulses in first, child rearing. <laughs> first, first rule of parenting, no fascistic impulses. I'm thinking of relying on these fascistic impulses to raise all of my kids. Well, good luck. <laughs> you, 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 you get the results you want. One of my books that is being published in England is entitled Hold On To Your Kids, and it's a parenting book. And it's all about attachment-based parenting. It's about uh, uh, parenting children from the perspective of understanding their needs rather than our expectations. And in in this culture, and this pertains to addiction as well, kids get too early hooked into the peer group to find their validation and their companionship. And when that happens, the parents lose their power to parent. Do you mean in adolescence, peer groups? it, It happens young before then. They get hooked into the peer groups. That becomes their sort of psychic state sustenance. That's what happens because, you see, if you look at how human beings evolved, uh, we evolved in hunter-gatherer groups when children were always around parents and adults and not just one parent and not just one set of parents but the whole tribe would be your mentor and your, and your parent. Now, that's gone, but from the point of human evolution, it hasn't been gone that long. No. Now, the human brain needs to attach. It needs to connect to somebody. We're just wired that way especially the immature brain, because without attachment, we don't survive. The infant does not survive without Mm -hmm. attachment. But we're not told who to attach to. Nature doesn't tell us who our attachment figure should be. A duckling hatching from the egg in the absence of the mother duck will imprint on on a moving toy, which is not designed to bring her up to adulthood. In our culture, our kids lose the contact with adults very early, or spend most of the time with other kids, and now their brains connect with other kids' brains. And now they become each other's mentors and models and, 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 and go-tos. And the result is prolonged immaturity. The result is resistance to parents. Uh, the resistance is the absorption of immature values that we see acted out throughout the culture. So that book is called Hold On To Your Kids. Hold On To Your Kids. Why, why parents need to matter more than peers. I'll read it. And if you look at addiction, in what context do most kids get uh, introduced to addictive substances? Peers. It's in the context of the peer group. And it's because of the loss of the adult influence. Mm. Right, it needs to replace the adult influence. Yeah. Do you think there are many instances where humanity would benefit from mimicking or at least acknowledging our anthropologically native state? Like if it's like, oh, we weren't designed to live in cities of 10 million people, we should yeah. have some version of a tribe, some version of a cohesive unit. Do you think uh, we should? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, nobody's advocating going back to hunter-gatherer days, no. uh, nor should we. But we've got to be conscious of what we've lost. Like, like we've, we've gone through this. And, and, you, and you can see this in countries like, like, like China, for example, which has gone through economic uh, evolution that took hundreds of years in the West. And the results are devastating. Oh. The results in terms of social distress and addiction and, and, and mental illness and so on, they have experienced in a few decades what, what, what even the West hasn't adjusted to over yeah. hundreds of years. And the results are really, really difficult. And they don't know what to do with it. And, and, and so they've gone from a society with a lot of connection to a society of disconnection in, in, in the blink of an eye. Mm. And, there's, and they're reaping the results, in, both in terms of tremendous wealth and also in terms of tremendous dysfunction. So if you have a disconnected population where all their energy can be directed <coughs> towards production... And, then acqui- and acquisition. And acquisition. Yeah. You will create economic success, but you will also cr- create dysfunction. 
Absolutely you will. You create addiction, you create uh, mental illness, you create aggression, uh, you create all kinds of unhappiness. I like this acknowledgement of uh, anthropology and the way that we form uh, systems. Uh, Gabor, it's been an amazing conversation. I've been tripping. Thank um, you. Can I just run through a few like uh, questions that are deliberately designed to generate to a... Make, to, to make me feel uncomfortable. That's right. Yeah. To <laughs> undermine your work, your feelings, <laughs> <laughs> everything you hold sacred and dear. Now they're like, uh, because we use little bits for clips on the internet. So of course. So sometimes they're current or sometimes you feel, oh, that'll be succinct. That's fine. Do you think drugs should be decriminalized in the UK? I think the personal possession of drugs should be decriminalized, which is not to say they should be sold, sold in corner stores, but nobody should go to jail for possessing drugs for personal use. Yeah, one of my mates goes, if you go into a prison, like and, you know, once in a while I go to a prison, he goes, it's not like full of robbers, it's just mentally ill people. <laughs> Well, that's not a joke. It's true. Yeah. Uh, if you look at actually, if you study uh, prison populations as I have, you see um, a concomitant preponderance of childhood trauma and mental illness. The two go together. Yes. And so a lot of the people are being punished for being mentally ill, and they're mentally ill because they were traumatized as kids. So what we have in jail are the most traumatized people in our society. It's curious how quite often in this conversation we are observing that we are arbitrarily drawing lines around the individual and not acknowledging social culpability in the construction of these states. Neither are we acknowledging the connection between us in empathy. So neither in the positive nor yeah. the negative are we looking at the reality of our interconnectivity. Well, absolutely. And by the way, if you kill one person, you go to jail. If you kill half a million people, you get a Nobel Peace Prize. And 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 and, and that and, should be looked at. And and are considered a, a great diplomat. So there's a bit of a disconnect here. How do you think the U.S. can solve its opioid problem? Um, first of all, uh, in the states, every three weeks now, as many people die of opioid overdoses as died in 9/11 in one day. Whoa. They have a 9-11 a day, did you say? They have a 9-11 every three weeks. A 9-11 every three weeks. Yeah. And uh, so what they need to recognize is what they're doing doesn't work, that, uh, that, that illegalization doesn't work, that punishing doesn't work, that jails don't work, that uh, people need compassion, not punishment, uh, and policies that reflect compassion rather than punishment. That's what I can say in a nutshell. So as well as decriminalizing drugs. Decriminalizing drug harm reduction, providing heroin to those people that actually need them because they can't do without for now, um, graded stepwise treatment facilities where people can deal with their trauma, where they can learn social skills, where they can learn physical skills, and where their brains can rewire so as not to need the drugs anymore. In a way, we kind of know this already, don't we? So why is it that we insist on punitive uh, criminal justice systems when we know it doesn't work and we know that a compassionate alternative would be more successful even financially well th that's like asking was the Iraq war a failure well if you take the stated aims of the Iraq war about weapons of mass destruction or creating democracy in Iraq and all this nonsense it was a total failure but was it a failure for the for the uh, manufacturers of weapons was it a failure for the power-hungry politicians that profited from it? In other words, the war in Iraq was a huge success for some people. The war on drugs is a huge success. 
for law, law enforcement agencies, for the court systems, for in the United States, particularly for the privatized jails, right? Uh, right. Put lots uh, of people for for the legal profession. In other words, uh, we don't make the changes because they ben the current system benefits a lot of people with a lot of people with power. So for the people that matter. The prison system isn't failing. For the people that matter, the judicial system isn't failing. It's for the people that matter, it's a, it's a huge success. A and, huge and, success. And for politicians who want to be tough on crime and get votes by appealing to people's prejudices and fears, it's a mm. huge it's a huge success. Also on this side of the Atlantic. Yes, it's a more successful narrative to yeah. vilify. Uh, section of the population that are basically redundant don't vote if they did vote they wouldn't vote for yeah. you turn them into criminals get them in uh, yeah. prisons we're working at two dollars an hour fantastic gig for everyone it's a everyone's great, a winner it's a huge success um fantastic that's brilliant so when you there's somewhere in your uh, book uh realm of the hungry ghost that uh, where you talked about the deliberate negative effects of the war on drugs is that what you have just summarized for me Deliberate or not, these are the actual impacts of the war on drugs. And I'm saying there's huge uh, power interests invested in the continuation of it. What so, so, you know, we have, I mean, there's every evidence about the real impact of the war on drugs. Johan Hari's brilliant book. Um, Scream. Yeah, Scream, the first and last days of the war on you know, drugs. All you got to do is read that book. All you got to read my chapter on the same subject. The evidence is all there. It's, this is not about that evidence. This is practice. Sometimes I'm asked to talk to politicians and, and, I, and I say to them, uh, look, you're asking me to practice evidence-based medicine. How about you practice evidence-based politics? Ooh, that's a good quote. Yeah, you, good you, quote. you can have that as long as you attribute it. Yeah, no, we've got I remember the other day I was saying <laughs> you can have evidence-based medicine, because as you know I'm a doctor, if you want, <laughs> but you've got to give me evidence-based politics. I Absolutely. said to him, ambassador, yeah. and then yeah. I had a Ferreira Rocher and I was done. Um, what do you think about the current gaming addiction problem uh, and its impact on young people? It fits the template, would you say? It totally fits the template of addiction, of a behavior that people crave, find temporary pleasure and long-term negative consequence, can't give up. The only thing is, they keep thinking about it as a new addiction. It's not a new addiction. It's just a new target for the same old addictive drive that is in human beings in general. So this society is adept at coming in with new targets for the addictive drive, but the drive is not new. We're just giving people different outlets for them. So we have to understand that in all addictions, whether it's my shopping addiction or, or, or my work addiction or, or your pornography addiction or, or sex or cocaine or gambling or heroin, it's all the same brain circuits, it's all the same emotional dynamics, it's all the same denial, it's all the same attempt to escape from reality. So the gaming addiction is just a new form of a dynamic that's very old. And the solution is as universal as the problem. The solution uh, in terms of prevention, as I say in this book, has to begin at the first prenatal visit because we already know that the emotional states of pregnant women affect the circuitry of the developing brain and children who suffer their mother's stress in uterus are more prone for addiction later on. So the addiction prevention needs to begin not at telling kids that drugs are bad, but by treating women well and by supporting young families. And, and, and those in whom addiction is actually established, we have to recognize that addiction is a solution, an attempted foredoomed solution to that of trauma. We gotta help people heal the trauma. 
Thank you for this. We must become more aware. We must become more loving. You're a bodhisattva, huh? You're helping other people over the line. Ask my wife if I'm a bodhisattva. She says that actually you're a bit of a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Gabor Mate, thank you so much. I'm uh, very grateful for your time. I'm very grateful for the love and work that you have given to the community of addicts and the illumination that you have brought to this complex and misunderstood and stigmatized subject from a personal perspective. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you.